All right, what's going on, guys? We're back with episode 12 now. I'm pretty sure it is. So, um, figured we'd jump into this one, do a quick little training recap for you guys. So, Steve, how is your training going? You've been hitting some good numbers. So, um, okay, so for context for our audience, because I don't know when this will be released or when they'll discover this, um, I am. <laughs> Oh yeah, I dude, I just took so many shots at Dalton. When he was sitting there and he was like, Hey guys, this is episode uh 12. Bro, I almost fired his ass up right then because like according to Spotify, this is episode nine or some shit. Because Dalton oh, no, just, no, no, we got 10 out right now. Dalton just collects episodes and just like sits on them, man. Like it's because right, so he's, he's internet in the past yeah. few days. He's real busy and he lives in like backwoods bumfuck Texas, apparently, where they where they lose internet for days on end and they lose power five no, times that's just, a month that's just texas that's just texas in general <laughs> so uh but for people who find this whenever they find this i am currently at this at this moment i'm three and a half weeks out from my next meet um maybe a little bit more somewhere in that region um so I am hitting my final weeks of what a lot of coaches would term like accumulation before I would start the uh, peaking uh, process of remove or like the tapering process of like tapering off volume. So at this point I'm hitting um, some decently heavy singles and I'm doing it with a ton of back down work and a lot of volume. Um, things are going well. I recently hit a 675 deadlift, which is an all-time PR for me. My last best was uh what was it 640 um so i hit a what was 35 that? pound pr yeah um it was clean too it was raw no straps um i don't you'll never catch me using straps for deadlift singles so also let's point out the fact that you know the 630 or was it 635 that you pulled before that you had a little bit of an issue with oh yeah, yeah. so i mean that's to me that's that's worth pointing out because like how many people have taken a lift, screwed up, and then ruined their entire top set? I was actually talking with an athlete about that today, where I was in a, an interesting position because I woke up on, this was a, a Friday for people who find this in the future. I woke up on a Friday and I had to work that day. But historically, our Fridays at work are pretty light. So I felt comfortable with scheduling a heavy deadlift session after work. Um, and then, you know, variables and circumstances outside of my control my boss's control, um, the job ended up being harder than we thought. And it ended up taking longer and it ended up taking like just a little bit more, um, a little bit more ass, like a little bit more oomph. And I had to expend um, some muscle running wheelbarrows through fucking tall grass. And it was just, it was just one of those things, you know, you got to get it done. Um, and we got it done. And so I initially got off work and was going to the gym and my training partner was not available. Um, so I was going by myself with like no hype, no spotters or anything. And I had it in my mind that I probably wasn't going to attempt the 675 just because of how much fatigue I was carrying from work. Um, but, you know, mama ain't raised no bitch. So I'm going to do the same thing I tell all my athletes to do, warm up and see what's there. So I start warming up. I start taking singles. I'm making plate jumps, 135, 225, uh, three, so on and so forth. I get up to 635 and I noticed that the pull right before that, which I think is 585, I noticed that it's, I'm not able to pull slack and wedge as well as I normally do. And that's, um, for me, that's a huge indicator that I'm tired and that I'm just like, I'm carrying a lot of fatigue. Like the, cause the, I pull slack with some of the, like, they call it some of the subscapulature musculature in my back. So some of like these small muscles in my back that 
they wear out fast and they get tired, especially like with the nature of landscaping work I do, like my back takes a lot of work at work also. So I noticed I wasn't pulling slack real well. And so I tried to change my technique a little bit on the 635. I brought my feet out a little bit wider and I externally rotated. So like I brought my, I, I pointed my toes out farther to like make it a little bit easier to understand. I pointed my toes out farther and I took a wider stance so that my hips would start closer to the bar. And like in terms of levers, like this puts you in what's what you would call like a more advantageous position. But here's the thing about advantageous position, guys. They're only advantageous if you can make them work for you and if you can stay stable through the motion. So if you actually go on my Instagram and you look at that 635, I blow it up off the floor. I'm in a pretty good position. But then when I actually go to bring my hips through, because I, I lock out pretty, pretty hard. Um, when I go to bring my hips through and my shoulders back, I just come straight back onto my heels and I'm actually like kind of close to a wall. And I had this like flash moment in my mind of me coming back and hitting the wall and the deadlift bar dropping on my knees. And so like my knees hyperextending and, the, and 600 something pounds snapping my knees. That's all I could think as soon as I started to feel myself come backwards. So I actually like push the bar away and like push myself into the wall to get away from the bar. Um, so, but that actually put me in the perfect position because I just missed a single. I'm already tired. I have like some decent excuses in my mind for why I missed the single being fatigue and whatnot. Um, and there's nobody at the gym and I don't have to post it anyway. So I might as well just load the 675, get cringily hype. You know how powerlifters get with their, with their cringy ass hype. Um, I got super hype and I swung it to 675 and I hit it super clean. Um, no hitch, no ramp, no, like no, no deadlift. Foul, I would so. say probably just as clean as a 635 before. Yeah. So, so I'm really happy with that. And then that was cool. And that was on a, that was Friday night. Tonight is Saturday. So today I woke up and I was like, man, I got a bench single at eight or nine, like just to kind of see like how the accumulate, how the accumulation of fatigue treats me. So went in there, we hit the 375, um, moved well, um, happy with it, especially given all the variables. And then tomorrow I've got a, a heavy squat, man, 475 to 500, um, which is kind of crazy to me because like 500 was like such a scary goal. And like now my math is projecting 500 as like my last, my last single of my accumulation phase with like my last heavy single being well over 500. So I'm in a good spot training wise, and um, I'm just excited how things are going. Come join us in the 600 club. <laughs> Man, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really, I'm optimistic about bench that I can hit, that I can hit the 400s. Like saying out loud that I'm going to deadlift in the 700s at 230 or whatever is like, that's kind of like nutty. Dude, it me. feels weird, doesn't it? Yeah, because I only recently hit 600. Like my progression. Yeah, within the last year, year I spent, right? I spent, a, I spent a long time trying to get to 600. It was this year. I hit it this year. Um, I spent a long no. time trying to get to 600. And then I hit 600 early this year. It was like January or whatever before Battle of the Bay. I hit the 600. I was super hype. And now, you know, five or six months later, I'm at like 700. But I spent so long between five and 600. That's what's crazy. And then I yeah. like... I know what it is. It was like the technique changes on and positioning yeah. changes that I made. All right, guys. So we have the des deadlift whisper. We don't, uh, 75 pounds in six months. So <laughs> DM, DM him all your questions. Man. Um, he's going to charge you a thousand dollars an hour, but Dude, your deadlift's going to go up by hundred pounds. And you'd be surprised how many random questions I get from people who don't even follow me too. Like I'll just, and I'm like, well, how did you even come across this account? Like what, <laughs> like what, what, why? <laughs> 
All right. So we're going to have training's going really well. So what about you? I mean, my training it's honestly, it's been lackluster. Um, but I mean, coming back from an injury, it kind of is what it is. You know, you take what you can, what you can't. Well, uh, I don't know if we even, did we ever cover what happened with me? Well, yeah, but it hasn't been released yet. So I would assume that by the time they get to this episode, this episode will come out after. Yes. By the time they get to this point in the three men, in the three men, one barbell timeline, they will hope we will hopefully have released the last two episodes. (laughs) So at this, I hopefully when they reach this moment, they'll be aware of what happened to your back. So yes. (laughs) So when you hear hear this six months from now. To give an insight. And so one of the problems I was dealing with when I was looking through the episodes, I was looking through it and I was like, Oh shit! Is this episode eleven or is this ten? Which one is this one? <laughs> so, oh man. All right, yeah, I gotta figure that out. Um, yeah, they're but, aware. They're aware that you injured your back. Yeah. So, at this point in time, I am moving pain free. Um, that was my main concern. Getting to a point where, you know, hey, doing daily life, doing my job, doing you know, being able to walk, walk my dog, things like that. Like I can do that now. It's pain-free. Those aren't issues. So at this point, like that is the point in my rehab where I'm like, okay, cool. We can start pushing things further and further along. Right. Um, yeah. doesn't mean that I wasn't doing things in that meantime. Yeah, this is um, what there was doing. a lot of research. There was a lot of, uh, small things being done behind the scenes as far as back strengthening, things like that. And when I say back strengthening, I don't mean like actual like deadlifts or rows or anything like that. I'm talking about like more of like the intrinsic muscles of the back, being able to stabilize the spine on just a regular basis, being able to take these thought processes of like spinal hygiene, uh, which I don't remember if I covered that one or not, but just spinal hygiene in general is just basically like being able to move your spine in the most advantageous manner for whatever you're doing, whether it's deadlifting, whether it's picking up a box, things like that, or sitting down. Right. So, uh, these are all things that I've been working on and you don't realize like how much you take advantage of things like that, or how much load you place on your back until you start doing these types of things or taking inventory of these types of things. And when you start doing that, then you get to a point where you're like, okay, cool. Like I understand now like where this came from. It wasn't something that was out of the blue or anything like that. Usually an injury is not out of the blue. Uh, but like I said, I'm pain-free now. Although that doesn't mean that I'm going to start pushing things right off the bat and going straight back into squatting. Am I squatting on a loaded bar? Yes, I am. But I'm only squatting up to like 50, 55% right now, uh, which is only like three through 50. Um, so with that someone, being said- Someone is listening to this going, fuck you. Yeah. 350 for 50%. Someone is going, fuck you, bro. I just want to speak <laughs> to that person right now. Fuck you. So go ahead with your 50%, only 350. <laughs> but that's the thing though. It's like I'm I'm trying to put myself in positions where one, I'm challenging myself. I'm challenging not only the back musculature, but I'm also challenging the musculature of like glutes, uh, the hamstrings, all these different things that should take more of a load, right? Because something happened to where my back took load, right? That's like, first and foremost, like that needs to be something that's addressed for me personally. Right. Um, it wasn't a squat that did it. It was a deadlift. Right. But at the same time, 
you know, our squat and our deadlift, they're both hip hinges, right? So if that's the case, you address it in both, you know, you don't just take one. Um, but yeah, that was, that's kind of the, the route I've been going with it. Um, been doing a lot of like camber bar squats where I have to stabilize things. Um, if I'm being honest, this would be probably one of the only times I would squat in a uh, chaos squat style fashion. So maybe like with a bamboo bar or anything like that. But at the same time, for me, a camber bar does just as good. Um, if anybody, <laughs> I have a personal vendetta with bamboo, bamboo bar um, or earthquake bar, whatever they call it. I don't even know. So, I'm thinking of the tsunami know. bar video. Tsunami. Right. Well, yeah, oh no, my God. Okay, so, so they're different for our, for our audience. The bamboo bar is the one that like shakes real, real yeah. bad when you try to bench press with it. The tsunami bar doesn't shake until you start like really putting momentum into it. So it's like a big rubber bar almost. You got to like, yeah. So specifically the one I'm talking with is like the, the one that challenges your stability. Um, I think tsunami bar is the one that can, you can load like three or 400 pounds and it just, like you said, oscillates. Yeah. That's just tsunami. Um, yeah. Which I, you know what? I won't even touch that. Um, I don't feel like getting sued. <laughs> I don't make enough money, <laughs> but yeah, so the earthquake bar would be probably one of the only things I would use, and especially being right now as just a way to challenge the back stability, as a way to really make sure like, hey, we are creating internal stability through function and not just structure. Um, so that is, that is where that would come in. But at the same time, like I said, the camber bar is the, what's doing that for me right now. So I'm not technically... Uh, low bar squatting fully. I am using a camber bar, but uh, as far as deadlifts and everything else goes though, that's just an altering the range of motion for me right now. So pulling from a block, things like that. Um, and that's really, that's really what you need to do when you're talking about injuries and working through injuries is finding the ways that you can move through things either through reduction in range of motion, uh, a change in load, uh, force vector, whatever it is. So frequency, yeah, all of it. Yeah, exactly. All of it. Like frequency is down for me right now. Like I'm only frequency for my competition specific squatting is down for me. I'm still belt squatting probably two to three times a week where that belt squats, a pause squat to a box and then a more like a hat filled style belt squat. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how well my squat bounces back or if we drop anything at all. Cause there was a good two to three weeks where I wasn't squatting whatsoever. Uh, and then I took some moderate singles. Um, I was able to, to squat full disclosure, full transparency, whatever they call it these days. I don't know. Uh, I was able to squat like five Oh five at more of a tempo. And then I deadlifted six Oh six. And that was last weekend at the three Kings seminar. Mm-hmm. But Again, those were very moderate and conservative. So it, it it's not something that I would say based off that I'm good to go. Um, do I feel like I'm good to go and good to, you know, start returning to squatting at full disc, like full capacity? I feel like it, yes. But I know from my own experience and experience with other people and other uh, other people's experiences with these types of things you're better off, you know, not rushing things, especially with an injury like this, because like 
use your spine for everything, right? You use your back for everything. If you can't use your back, you can't transfer load. So it doesn't matter. Um, so I'm choosing to take a longer, longer ramp up to it, right? Uh, so I'll start slowly adding loads, slowly adding volume, uh, slowly adding frequency and things like that. But that's going to be one or the other, not just all at the same time. So one week I might add load, one week I might add frequency, one week I might add another rep or two, or maybe another set. Uh, that just really, really depends. So um, and if anybody wonders where I get a lot of the uh, rehab principles that I'm using right now, Danny Lomatini spoke about her last time too. I'm, I'm taking a lot of things from her as far as like how to rehab, uh, smartly rehab soft tissue, which to me, this is what this is more because it's the soft tissue of the intrinsic muscles of the back. So erector spinae and things like that. Um, but, uh, it's been pretty good. Yeah. Training for me has not been very motivating is a good way to put it, I think. But I mean, like we talked about this before getting on the podcast, so this is probably a good segue into another topic before we dive into some questions. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to go through ups and downs. Um, and this goes with either motivation, um, rehab, whatever, strength in general, like it's not going to be linear. Um, there are days where my back's like, Hey, <laughs> you thought you were good, but you're not. Uh, but that's just how the rehab process goes. You know, uh, for the most part, I'm stringing together good days very consecutively, which is nice. Um, there might be a day or two out of the week where I'm like, okay, I kind of feel my back. Uh, so that's just kind of how that, that process is going. But like I said, you're going to have ups and downs through any, any of the processes that we go through, like powerlifters in general, bodybuilding, uh, endurance-based athletes. Like it's all, nothing's linear in this. So just realize that. Um, but I will say the one thing that keeps me going as far as like motivation um, is just having a goal, having a plan, being able to stick to that. So now we're getting into some, some life stuff because apparently we're life coaches now too. But I mean, that's, I honestly, though, that's the biggest thing for me, um, that and having in the future saying like, Hey, like I, I know what I need to do to get back to squatting six plus that's what I need to do right now. And that's going to pay off in the long run. So having that goal in the future, like, uh, I don't know if I've talked about it, but I, I will squat 700 before I put wraps back on. Um, and I'll squat 700 in a meat raw. The, the whole goal is to total 1800 plus raw. So being able to work backwards from that and be like, okay, cool. Well, this is, these are the things I need to do if I want to get back to that position, right? If I want to squat 700, pull 700 and then bench, uh, you know, let's not talk about bench, <laughs> but at the same time, like those are, those are the goals. That's the uh, intrinsic motivation that I have to keep going. Um, and actually motivation is not even the, the correct term in my opinion to use because motivation is a fleeting thing. Uh, I've spoke about this on some of the other podcasts I've done. Um, motivation is something that's very fleeting. It's very in the moment. Like, you know, Hey, I, I'm motivated to go do this right now. Like I'm motivated to go to the gym right now. Let's go do this. Let's go kick some ass. You know, I'm motivated to get this goal done. I just made this goal. I'm so motivated on it. And a week later, they're like, I'm not motivated to do this anymore. It's like, cool. Yeah. Cause you didn't create a desire to do it. Right. 
desire means more to me than motivation. Uh, so if I can set that intrinsic deep desire to do things, then for me, that's going to be a lot more valuable. And I think that goes for a lot of people. So I know uh, we, we get on Instagram, we get on YouTube, things like that. And we, we might listen to these little speeches or watch people do things, which is great and all. Uh, but when it comes down to it, it's like, you know, what's, what's your desire? Like, do you actually desire to do this type of stuff? Do you actually desire to uh, want to work within this, this realm? You know, for me, do I want to, do I desire to go spend four more years at college to do what I want to do? Or do I desire something else? Right. Uh, like, desire is going to be a longer lasting emotion than motivation or anything like that. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's my sap stories. Uh, Steve, what about you? <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you talk about uh, your, your motivation. Cause I, I, tra- I track a metric that a lot of people, I don't want to say aren't keeping track of, or maybe aren't aware of, and it's called readiness to train. So before every session, I rate my readiness to go into the session based on how hard I perceive it's going to be and how fatigued I am. Lately, my readiness to train has been around a five. And dude, it is never a five. Like I check my variables. My shit is usually eight, nine, 10. Readiness to train, 10. I slept, I ate, I'm ready to go fucking do this shit. Lately, it's been a five as in like, as in like, I'm... I'm contemplating moving sessions around and like combining sessions and like lighten it, like, you know, just cause it's like, man, I'm tired. I'm fatigued. There's a lot going on outside of the gym. Um, I'm in like a weird, like emotionally turbulent time in my life as well. And it's like <clears throat> some of my, some of what I would call like my motivation hasn't necessarily been there, but speaking to your point directly, like my desire has never been higher. And like, um, I'm, I'm a fan of, of, of the term dedication where it's like, I'm dedicated to this process. Like, this is what I fucking do. And this, and I do this regardless of how tired I am, how fatigued I am. Like I wake the fuck up, I make my meals, I do what I can do. And I, and I lift, I do the best I can. And because I'm dedicated, you know, my dedication takes over when motivation is fleeting, you know, cause it's not motivation is temporary. And a lot of times motivation for people is externally driven where like, they'll be like, oh, bro, I just saw this sweet motivation video on YouTube or like, you know, someone will accomplish something or I'll even hear it sometimes. They're like, bro, you really motivate me. And I'm like, yo, that's dope. And I hope that you can parlay that motivation into dedication because if I motivate you to get strong, like brother, you're fucked because you don't even know who I am. Like when it gets even moderately inconvenient for you, if you think I, the thought of me is going to power you through the inconveniences that are going to crop up to get there, Bro, no, like you have to have, like Dalton's talking about the desire and you have to have the dedication. Um, so yeah, it, it's weird because a lot of, a lot of newer lifters, um, man, this sport, and I hear other, I hear other older lifters, more famous lifters speak on it. Like lifters who have been speak who've been lifting forever, like Trevor Jaffe speaks on it all the time where he's like, man, I'll meet lifters or lifters will get in my DMS and they'll say some stupid shit. And they'll say some stupid shit in my comments or my DMs. And like one of the first most reassuring things I could think to myself is, A, you've probably never competed in your life. And B, if you have, you probably won't again in three years. So like within three years, you will probably have disappeared out of the sport. And like, I'm not going to name names and like, but you and I, if you and I sit here and just think about mutual acquaintances that we know personally, we can come up with over a dozen people that we know who have just quit the sport. 
they just dropped out. Like, and they, they were actual power lifters and like, I hate to like burst people's bubble at home, but like power lifters compete. You can train for powerlifting, Like you can perform powerlifting movements in the gym, but to be a power lifter, you got to put on the fucking singlet and get judged. And like, we know real power lifters who held like state records and shit, like not national records, but state records. And they matter to some people um, who, who had like a degree of success, I mean, and who just disappeared out of the sport. And it's like, I, I sometimes think about that sometimes, like I'll, I'll take comfort in the thought that like, for me, this is a long-term process and like recognizing that long-term processes have their ups and downs. And it's the same thing with progress. Like progress is not linear, especially not in fucking powerlifting. If you think you're no. just going to add 10 pounds to all your lifts linearly until you have a 2k total brother, that's not how it works. Good like, luck. Uh, let I, me know when you get injured or, you know, completely burn out because that's going right. to happen sooner. So like my, de- my deadlift has gone up probably hundred pounds in six months. My bench has mastered brother. If I can get five or 10, if I can get a five or 10 pound PR on my bench, I'm going to be like, yes. <laughs> Hell yes. Cause like, I'm not well suited to bench. Like I'm, I'm not well suited to it. Leverage wise. I'm not very confident in it. I've had to change my technique to accommodate this new federation's rules, which I, I was super salty about, but the more I spend time benching with my it's not even, I've even realized, I don't even so much enjoy having my feet flat. I still don't like that. What I enjoy is having my knees out and open. So for anybody who's maybe not familiar with what I'm talking about, I'm a tall guy. I'm, I'm, I'm over six foot, like not tender six foot, like real life six foot. So when I get on some of these little combo benches, like, man, it's, I look funny because like my legs are so long. So like when yeah. I go to bench, I, if I bench on my toes in the USPA style, I can get my knees under my hips. And then when I drive my legs, I'm able to create, I'm able to reinforce the arch and create power through there. But when I bench with flat feet, it's really hard for me to get my knees under my glutes. So like, I can already hear you thinking, you're like, damn, you're tall like that. Like, yeah, bro, my legs are long like that. Like when my feet are flat, my knees are higher than my hips. And like creating leg drive where your butt doesn't come straight up in the air at that point is like, it's tough. But the compensation to that, that I got and shout out Joe Sullivan, who, you know, gave, who gave me the idea was that instead of necessarily driving so much in a straight direction, if I could drive outwards and then externally rotate my femurs at the same time, I would reinforce the position of my glutes on the bench. So my butt never came up again. And I've really enjoyed that externally rotated position. Like y'all go on my Instagram and look, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Where like yeah. my feet are, whereas before I would just kind of, my knees would be really close to the bench. And I would even notice on some of my max lifts, like my adductors would fire and I would be almost like squeezing the bench with my, with my adductors versus now the style is for me to externally rotate and like push my knees out, which is also how I squat and sumo. So it like, it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I do the same, same concepts on my bench press. I'll take a wider foot uh, mm-hmm. or wider foot placement. Because you're also tall with long legs, yeah. Exactly. I'm 6'1". So basically what he's saying, what Steve is saying, is screwing your feet into the ground, right? It's the same concept we use for bench pressing, or not bench pressing, uh, squatting and deadlifting, right? Uh, It's it's screwing your feet into the ground, you know, clockwise and counterclockwise, and being able to create a stable platform at the foot. Um, One of these days I really need to go through and make some videos around like, you know, what we're actually doing at the foot, because so much of that gets overlooked. Um, so for people who have a foot fetish, look to some people in the some videos in the future. 
uh, you might get to see some feet, but fair warning, mine are pretty janky. So, um, unless so, Steve has some better feet, then. But. Interesting, interesting sidebar. Both <laughs> my both myself and one of my favorite athletes spent an entire training block uh, squatting barefoot. Yeah. And we were literally looking at foot mechanics and like weight distribution, ankle collapse, like what the big toe is doing, rooting, like. Yep. So, and if this is not like we're, I did, we're not pioneering this shit. Like a lot of high level lifters are doing this shit. So, well, and so that's the thing though. It's what like, your feet are doing. like lift when you look foot, at foot mechanics too, you know, when people squat, it depends on how you're, you're set up to squat and whatnot, but like, is a pronation of the foot, is it bad or is it good? You know, it really just depends on some people. Cause I've gone back and forth with it. Like, okay, you should not pronate. You should always keep your arch. You should always do this. But then again, like I, I've talked about it before, like that always word is such a, it's a hard word for me to use anymore. Because everything is so independent of one another. I'm immediately, um, I'm immediately thinking of like Chance Mitchell and like lifters like that who lift with like a very narrow stance and like some yeah, of that exactly. ankle collapse. Some of the ankle collapse facilitates the internal rotation that allows exactly. them to drive through the top. So like, yeah, I, I'm well, immediately, so, yeah, I'm with you. That's my thing though. And <laughs> I've argued so much sometimes with uh, other coaches about whether or not there's internal rotation of the femur at there has to be. in a squat and it's exactly there has to be they're literally like, I, I they don't understand mechanics if they think there's not like there has to yeah be. like there has to be some kind of rotation somewhere whether it's coming from the tibia at the ankle yeah. whatever like the hip like the femurs something has to internally rotate or you have to shift in some way or yeah. be built a special kind of way to not have that but even then at some point we, okay yeah. so for a general rule once you hit about 90 degrees of hip flexion that's when you start going into some kind of internal rotation yep. um and I'm, I'm speaking very general i'm not saying that it's a blanket statement or anything like that but 90 degrees i would say is about that that place right and then you have to get into some kind of internal rotation to get deeper into the squat uh look at some of these chinese weightlifters and things like that um, they have to go through external rotation into internal and some of them even have to go back into external to get to that point which is why a lot of them you'll see their knees have some kind of valgus movement to them and that's just, that's partly where i get to um whether or not valgus is a bad thing or not um but that's a whole different topic i'm getting off topic uh I think we both have really similar opinions in yeah. that it facilitates advantageous patterns to lift more weights, i.e. Amanda Lawrence, for example, like it's not like, how can you say it's bad? Like, that's yeah. what I mean. Like if it lets, if it literally lets her squat more and lets her win gold medals and it doesn't fuck her up, how can you literally say it's not good? Like just because it doesn't look good to you. And I wish Kyle was here. Cause I feel like Kyle would fight me in the streets about this. Like, <laughs> Kind of like like uh, we like okay so for, for our listeners it's just Dalton and I today um Kyle is uh so Kyle's actually doing something kind of cool today he was running yeah. a platform crew for the USPA um the Magic first City. ever Fulson initiative platform crew yes yeah for the for the USPA Magic City uh drug tested liftoff and uh, they are reporting zero dropped bars zero missed loads uh zero missed catches so you can't ask for more out of a spotting and loading yeah exactly I'm excited no. to have him at the nightmare too um so that's why kyle's not with us he's probably driving back through a literal hurricane trying to <laughs> trying to get back home <laughs> but kyle is a um kyle has a big background in like uh, human movement mechanics and so he has um he has a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience in that kind of thing 
And um, I feel like he would have strong opinions on knee collapse and internal rotation in the squat. But yeah. in, in order, so what we're talking about with internal rotation of the femur for like our audience, if you picture, if you picture someone like, um, let's, all right, even Dan Bell, like most of us can picture Dan Bell's squat because he films very from the front and he always films with a consistent camera angle. And so he initiates by externally rotating the femurs and bringing his knees out. And that's how he initiates and creates depth. But then you'll notice when he hits depth, he and most other lifters have a moment where their knees tick in. And even if it's only just so slight, even if it's a half inch, that moment is the adductors and the, the, um, the musculature of the inner thighs. There's only like, you don't really only have like three internal rotators, and, you know, so the, it's those three muscles are firing in that moment to create that, that pop out of the hole. So you will initiate usually with external rotation, and then you'll come out of the hole by going into, and a lot of lifters, I was even speaking with Mike about this. Like, I know when I've hit depth because I will feel that degree of internal rotation. So if yep. I'm initiating by going into external rotation, when, when I cross 90 degrees that like we're talking about, I do feel that moment where my knees kind of tick, like they kind of tick in just a, just a bit. And I say, okay, that's, I know I'm at depth and it works every time for me. So they're like for, for me, and I would say for like 99.9% .9 of humans, I would love to see someone squat without ever using any internal rotation of the femur. Yeah. Like, I mean, because, because then your adductors don't work. Well, exactly. But at the same time, realize what we're saying is that valgus, it's not necessarily, again, that it's bad or that it's good. You have to take an inventory of your own movement. You have to be able to say, cool, with this movement, what muscles are we loading and be able to work backwards from that, right? So Jeff that we're, I'm working with right now, you know, we're repatterning his squat. We're making it more of a glute dominant squat instead of an adductor dominant squat. Yeah. Realizing like, hey, okay, cool. Whenever his knees come in and he pushes back like that he's not loading the glutes he's loading the adductors which is causing him pain which and it wouldn't be necessarily much of an issue if we were still getting the glutes involved um yeah. and this isn't anything against him it's just that's how he's squatted so we yeah. have to we have to recreate this motor pattern and create a consistent motor pattern that's loading the glutes more often um it's people, it's not about for people not familiar, Jeff is actually even more tall than I am and is yeah. even more built like a giraffe than I am. So like <laughs> when we talk about Jeff's high bar squats, let me put it this way. My dude squats out of like the fucking 19 peg in, in a combo rack, the 19 for like our audience listening. So like, yeah. And so now you're yeah. a little bit more familiar with some of like what we're talking about with Jeff, with Jeff's high bar stuff. But that's the thing is like when he hits depth, if he's not loading the correct musculature and I've, mm -hmm. I completely forget what topic we were even talking about before this. Um, but if he's not loading the right musculature, then he can't drive through and create that power production. Right. So if we're only loading smaller muscles, i.e. like the adductors and things like that, that are for hip extension, mm -hmm. that's great. But realize also that the adductors aren't responsible for, hip extension. They're a secondary role of hip extension. They're responsible for adduction and internal rotation. That is their primary adductors. responsibility. Exactly. Um, <laughs> like, oh, wow. Not extensors. Wow. Like, no, no. Like a lot of people like this biomechanic stuff, like a lot of people make it sound like really esoteric and like really advanced and hard, but like, man, the adductors adduct, like, you it, know, like it's as simple as that. Yes. 
and realize depending on the position of the muscle and where the uh what the angle is actually at angle of the joint yeah yeah exactly like that can change the muscle function you just have to understand that so the uh the glute is going to act as an external rotator and a strong hip extensor. Mm-hmm. Um, fun fact, though, actually, only like a third of the glutes actually attach to bone. So that was a fun fact that I learned. But it's a, uh, it's if that's not what's doing the hip extension, right? Then we have to put our body into the position of whatever else is doing the hip extension, i.e., an adductor, which means we're going to have to push back and have our hips set to a point where the adductor can actually hip extend, right? Um, so that's part of what I'm talking about here is like we have to repattern that motor pattern, repattern that motor pattern, regroove that motor pattern to take advantage of the glutes at the bottom and at the top while also taking advantage of the adductors to perform their duty, which, like I said, is adduction and internal rotation and also stabilization of the pelvis, right? Uh, so that's going to be more advantageous and that's going to put more maneuvers on his squat than anything else. Like if I, we could, he and I could probably sit here and continue to squat like this and never have an issue as long as we manage load correctly. Right. But here's the thing with it. If we can regroove this pattern and make it a more biomechanically efficient, I'm using that in quotation marks because nothing is ever uh, like the most uh, advantageous or the most efficient or anything like that. There's always, it's always changing to some degree, right? Then at that point we can load more and we might be able to handle more volume because we're not taxing these small intrinsic muscles and like it, not to say the adductor is small or anything like that, because it, it is a very large muscle consisting of three different muscles. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like, it has a specific role. And it has a secondary role. If we're making its secondary role, its specific role and its primary role, that's going to lead to an issue. That's going to lead to adductor tears, strains, and just overall general like, tiredness in that area, right? So we can't channel as much load, as much volume or frequency through that. But if we, like I was saying, if we load it correctly, and I struggle saying correctly, I just don't have a better word for it right now. Uh, if we load it through the glutes more, we'll be able to actually take advantage of the glutes in their primary role, which is hip extension. Uh, yeah, so that's just a, it's a long-winded way to, to say like we're regrooving his pattern to take advantage of his stronger muscles. Solid. Um, and then I think I think we also had um, we also had some uh, listener questions pop up um, right away. I had an interesting one. And it actually came a little bit of contextual backstory. Uh, it came from a lifter who, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be wrong, but when I met her, she lived uh, in the Pacific Northwest. She, uh, we were both lifting. Uh, we were lifting in a town called Newburgh, Newburgh, Oregon. And I had literally just started powerlifting as in like, I joined this gym and I was going to figure out how to powerlift. Like I had not, I had not at that moment done anything I had spent a little bit of time getting into it back in high school. You know, like I thought it was interesting. I was, but it was all geared lifting back then. There was no raw lifting in the, this is pre 2010. Like the raw revolution hadn't even happened yet. So I kind of like spent some time marginally thinking it was cool, but never got into it because of like the gear and everything. Um, 
And so anyway, 10 years later or whatever, here I am in Newburgh and I'm joining this gym, wanting to be a powerlifter. And there's a girl, Megan there, who is already a phenomenal powerlifter. She was like a 132 at the time, deadlifts over 400 pounds, like natty, by the way. Yeah, natty. She's and this is back like pre-2010, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, like conve conventional. Like, well, this is, uh, this was like three or four years ago now at this point when I met her. Okay. But anyway, really good lifter, light lifter, tested. Um, and uh, she could squat significantly more than I could. <laughs> and she was a 132 female. I was a 285 pound man. So I really looked up to her and like her accomplishments and like her abilities as a lifter. So now three and a half years later for her to find me on Instagram, follow me and then ask me a random question was a cool moment. So shout out Meg from Oregon. And she had a question. She's a conventional deadlifter and she pulls with a mixed grip. Um, she consistently uses the same setup on her mixed grip. So she pronates the same hand and she supinates the same hand. So the same hand will always be facing down and the same one will always be facing up. And she's complaining to me of visual aesthetic imbalances in her back. So she says that one trap is noticeably larger than the other. And on that same side, one lat is noticeably larger than the other. Uh, okay, so that's an aesthetic consideration. And my immediate thought was, aesthetics are only aesthetics and powerlifting. Let's talk about the movement mechanics and let's talk about your pain. Um, she then is complaining about a medical diagnosis of upper back scoliosis that predates powerlifting. So it's not like, it's not like powerlifting created, like I'm not saying that at all. Um, and I'm also not saying that scoliosis is dangerous in powerlifting. Uh, I have it and right off the top of my head, Brandon Allen, uh, you might've heard of him. He totaled like 2,600 or some shit at 308. He's got a wicked uh, upper back scoliosis. He posts about it all the time on his Instagram. So she's complaining about like some upper back deviation and positioning. And so she's saying that this, uh, the imbalance is, is noticeable aesthetically. So she doesn't like that. And that it's also presenting in like muscle, not like what she's describing as muscle knots and tightnesses and uh, even painful adhesions in her upper back on one side versus the other. So she, her direct question was, A, do I believe that her mixed grip is causing or contributing to the aesthetic imbalances in her back? B, do I believe that it is long-term uh, disadvantageous in powerlifting for her to have these imbalances? And to answer that, I had to ask her, so is it causing any deviation in your movement mechanics? And so she says, yes, this is a really important question. She says, yes, she is experiencing the windmill effect. Um, and for some of our, for some of our conventional mixed grip pullers, when the weight starts getting heavy enough and you, you get that kyphotic, like mid upper back rounding, you'll see them do what's called the windmill where the bar will they're on the hand that's facing towards them. They're getting more lat engagement essentially than on the other side. And they will push the bar into them on that side and the bar will drift away on the other. Yep. So the bar will like rotate away from their body. And uh, she's describing that sensation also. So after all of this, the question was, A, do I think that the, mix, that the mixed grip is causing or contributing to the imbalance? B, do I think it's bad for performance? Which, you know, she answered her own question. C, do I think that she would be, do I think, do, would I advise that she alternates her mixed grip? So should she start to change the hand positioning? Should she change it every week, every month? Like, how, do, I, do I recommend and how? And then the next question after that would be, if that's not the recommendation, then what do I recommend 
in order for her to progress in this issue that she's perceiving. So Dalton, go ahead and start with that. <laughs> you, I, I see you've got a lot going on over there. <laughs> also, okay. Um, I want to give you all one. the contextual information that you yeah. need. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing though. I would have asked the same questions. Yeah. Like, and that's that's the important part. Um, because you got you can't just say one thing or another. Um, like you have to have some of this nuanced information to a nuanced question, right? Um, so specifically, aesthetically, who gives a shit? All right. We're powerlifters, we're not stepping on a stage to say, look at me and prance around in speedos or our underwear and be judged by other men or women based on how we they think we look, right? Um, ask me how I feel about bodybuilding. But, but aesthetics <laughs> matter. I mean, especially to young single people, like aesthetics do matter, you know. Aesthetics matter, but what I'm saying is like I aesthetics agree. Like, for powerlifting, don't care. I, okay. I could care less about any of that. Um, as far as hypertrophy go, any well-written program is going to have some kind of hypertrophic effect to it, just based on the program itself and you know the things we should be doing within programming principles. Uh now as far as what was the second part of that as well? Like the um, second B. Okay. So do, okay. Do I think it's contributing to her aesthetic concerns? And uh, that was part A and part B is, do I think it's disadvantageous to continued performance? So that's, again, it's going to come down to what your movement quality and quantity is like, right? Okay, cool. Can we perform these different movements and is a mixed grip taking away from that advantageous uh, position. Uh, if it is, maybe you should look at something like a hook grip if you can bear the pain. Uh, I'm actually switching over to a hook grip right now. Um, pray for me and send me, you know, flowers and goodwill. Uh, <laughs> shut up, Steve. I'll, I'll get Don't in, make I'll get me in, feel even worse. <laughs> I'll, I'll get into it when I, when I answer the questions. I'll yeah. get into it, but go ahead. Um, but at the same time, realize we have to make some kind of trade-off at some point, right? Um, if we're going to deadlift with an over-under grip, we have to realize one one side is going to have to have more external rotation than the other. If we want to get into a good position, realize we're going to have to have better thoracic mobility to get into these better positions because as we externally rotate, we're going to draw ourselves down. We're going to have tighter joints which means we're going to be closer down to the bar, right? Uh, so you have to take that into account. Um, unless you're just somebody that pulls with round with the thoracic, which is, that's fine as well. But uh, I won't get into that nuance right now. So it's, it's really just going to depend on what your movement's like, what your movement mechanics are like, what your body can handle. Um, so take inventory of that. You know, how well do you externally rotate on the left versus the right? Um, now saying that you also probably need to if you're having trouble with it you probably need to increase your external rotation on whichever hand is uh in that under position in my experience that's where a lot of people's either bicep tendonitis pain has come from or that windmill effect is coming from or the fact they just can't hold on to the bar right uh so that's in my experience where that's coming from is that when they go to externally rotate, they can't get into this position. I've literally watched people that this is the position they get into, right? Uh, for those of you that can't see, um, my hand is not fully, 
externally rotated or anything like that. So like I can get in this position. So I have no issue pulling over under, uh, even though I am switching to hook, but I'm switching to hook to make a more advantageous position as in stacking my body. <laughs> Steve is very excited about that. It's like cheating. Um, yeah, exactly. When, when um, I'll get into it, but like it's, yeah. it's almost cheating. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, so I would probably lose like 50 pounds on my deadlift in mixed grip. No bullshit yeah. for like a, a few reasons. So, so I originally I wasn't going to switch back to hook grip or try to go through this is okay. Full disclosure, I've tried to switch to hook grip four or five different times. All right. Uh, I just recently talked with Kayla Willem, you know, who pulled 954 or 58 or something like that. Uh, the three Kings seminar. And he was like, yo, like you're, you look good. I would just consider switching the hook grip. That way you can get an even better position. And when you have somebody that's pulling 900 plus is a all time record holder, you listen to what they have to say and shut up in color. Uh, at least give it a shot. Cause odds are, you know, he's coached himself. He has to know something. Um, and plus I've seen some of the other people he's coached and it's just like, okay, you're making progress. Like, you know what you know. Uh, but yeah. So getting back to the question, um, is this gonna, I guess, detract from like the movement and whatnot? Uh, you really need to, again, like I said, take it, take a, an inventory of what the, the mechanics look like, what the quality of the movement looks like. Right. And also realize what are you missing within your training? Okay. So if you're missing, if you're missing movements that are putting you in the same position as in that deadlift position to where you're externally rotated all the way, then you should start looking for positions of like this within your own training. All right. Uh, it's a very novel concept that I've been using for the past couple of years that a lot of people have just like really skipped over, you know, we always talk about back training, back training, back training. And I hit on this a couple episodes ago um, about how not all back training is created equally. And if we're always looking to, you know, train back, train back two to one uh, press pull ratio or push to pull ratio, whatever it is, um, you really have to understand like, what are we doing? What are we training? All right, cool. So if you're somebody who's already training a bunch of rows, a bunch of pull downs, things like that. Realize that you're not training the upper back. Realize you're training the lats. Realize the role of the lats, okay? The role of the lats is to pull the arm down and internally rotate. Um, do a front double lat spread and, or not double lat spread, but a, a front lat spread and you'll, you'll understand what we're saying, right? <clears throat> now, you have to understand training the back and how to train the back. So you're saying you have a one side is atrophied versus the other side. Okay. Well, now we need to actually look at, okay, how do we, how do we connect with these? Okay. We need to put ourselves in disadvantaged positions for these specific muscles to make them pull the brunt of the load. Right. So an incline dumbbell uh, shrug, I think it's called like a Kessler shrug or something like that is going to make you actually use the musculature of the trap and part of the rhomboids because you're at an incline, you're actually pulling into that vector that the trap and rhomboid pull into versus just straight up, which is only part of the trap's duty, right? The trap is big. It's a lot bigger than what people think. It's a very thick uh, muscle. It's not necessarily, I should say dense. Dense is more uh, 
an appropriate term, I think. And realize also that training the upper back is going to have a more profound effect than training the lower back or the, the lats per se, and keeping your position. Your lats are important. They are very, very important for uh, spinal stabilization. But to actually keep positioning within a deadlift, we're going to need a lot of upper back strength as well. So that needs to be something that is taken into account. But like I said, put yourself in the positions that you're not in or you're trying to be in and have trouble getting into in your own training. So think about, you know, whenever you are doing rows, whenever you are doing pull downs, whenever you, whatever you're doing at all, even if it's a bicep curl. Okay, cool. How do you put yourself in a position to where your arm is externally rotated, your palm is facing up, um, and you're actually getting quality time spent in this where your body is saying, cool, I am able to get into these positions and not have issues. Uh, that's going to be more, that's going to be better for you than anything else. In my opinion is just being able to take these positions in training because how many of us are actually going to sit there and do mobility work every single day, day in, day out to get to these points. And how many of us actually need it? Um, the answer is probably slim. So now, all right, now that I've beaten that dead horse, what was the last part of the question? <laughs> I have a short attention span, so, apparently. So was would we recommend that she alternates her grip sometimes, all the time? Um, and then if that is not our recommendation, what would our recommendation to her be moving forward? I would say no, don't, don't change it. Uh, unless you have pain or anything like that that's coming with it, I wouldn't worry about it. And the reason why I say that is because you're trying to be as specific as possible when we get to deadlifting, right? Whenever we, degrees of separation is the terminology I like to use around it. So if you think about it, if you take your competition mix grip and then you switch that, okay, number one, that's one degree of separation. So you're no longer doing a competition specific deadlift. And I'm saying competition specific to you because that's what matters. If you don't always pull with the right hand and the under position, like I never pull with my right hand in an under position, then as soon as I switch that and I pull with the right hand underneath, it's not competition specific anymore. I lose a lot of power because it's like coordination wise, it's not there for me. Uh, maybe you're different, but I would say, no, I wouldn't even worry about it, to be honest, unless there's some kind of pain that's involved or movement discrepancy. Um, if anything, if it's something you're considering, I would say switch to hook grip. But apart from that, that's not, that would not be an immediate concern of mine would be switching. It would just be putting yourself in those positions in training, be able to take that same movement path. So when we're talking about it, one of the things we're talking about, like if it's a cable row, try to match the same position that you're in the deadlift, right? So if it's at the bottom of a cable row, maybe take a cable row where you're standing but in a, a slight torso lean, right? So that way you can get into that position and be able to pull down and into yourself while keeping that same hand uh, externally rotated. Uh, that's going to be more advantageous, like I said, than switching your grip. Okay. All right. So I will answer the question as well. And so part A was... Uh, 
do I think is contributing to some of the aesthetic imbalances that she's seeing. Um, so some more background on this is being that we trained at the same gym for like three or four months at the time she was working with a guy named Tim and I'm somewhat familiar with some of Tim's training methodologies. Um, and if memory serves, it was uh, very specific and it was raw. <clears throat> so being that I suspect that you have been using the same mixed grip for literal years at this point, and that you've been doing it frequency, like you've been doing it for volume raw at high intensities. Um, and that's important. I don't mean that, I, I don't mean that she necessarily is pulling just her top singles mixed grip. I mean, to my knowledge, I believe she was pulling all of her deadlifts with this same mixed grip. So it's like, at that point, do I believe that it's possible that there's an, an actual visual, a visual aesthetic imbalance for sure, especially for Meg, because she was, she's a small lean woman, like, um, and she's, she's jacked. Like the girl's been powerlifting at a national level for years now, like low key, she's jacked as fuck. So like, I have no problem believing that the mixed grip has contributed to the aesthetic imbalance. Um, so yeah, we're, we're all, we all can get on the same page there. Part B being, do I think that the, do I think that the muscular imbalances that we agree are potentially at least contributed to by the mixed grip, do I believe that that will start to hinder performance? Um, my initial, my initial, I'm going to have to defer to your answer that you're experiencing the windmill effect, Meg. Um, now I would be interested to see whether this is more pronounced as you get stronger. So like, did it happen at 315 and it happens more at 350 and now it happens more at 400 and now it happens even more at, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, I would also, I would also wonder how much your positioning impacts this windmilling um, and being that she was a conventional puller and she was using the advantageous positioning of like the rounded upper back. Um, again, she was, she was like 132 pound tested female pulling 400. Like, so there was like some upper back rounding and like, there was like going out and getting it. And I'm not saying that it was like dangerous, bad, or disadvantageous. Cause again, 400 pounds at 132, like eat a dick. Like that's amazing. Um, I, I would suspect that over time, those imbalances and the fact that the position may become more compromised with more load, you may start to see more of a windmill effect. So my initial, my initial suggestion would be the same as Dalton that I pull hook grip. Um, and I first got into hook grip simply because I didn't want to drop the bar. Um, I've, I've, I've never dropped a bar. I've never dropped a bar that I didn't let go of. I'll put it that way. I have like dropped bars at my knees and stuff, but it's only cause I wanted to, it's not cause like it popped out of my hands. Um, so that was true, but what I'm actually finding to be the most true, and I will say this, especially in sumo, especially for my wide stance, externally rotated sumo, like, and that's kind of becoming the wave, like people are kind of embracing that trend more and more. I'm noticing that you kind of live and die by lat, lat and upper back tightness and specifically scapula and shoulder roll. So for me, if I'm initiating in the sumo position and my, and I let my hips rise and my shoulders, I'm sorry, my shoulders roll forward even a little bit, I'm in a bad spot. But if I can really crank on my lats and I can really, what I'm, what I'm doing is externally rotating the humerus. I'm, I'm protecting my armpits. You hear it said a lot. I'm protecting my armpits. I'm cranking back and down on my lats. And then I'm initiating. And the, the position that I'm able to get in via the double overhand hook grip is a million times better 
And I, I will tell you, you don't even have to pull the bar. Just set, just set up double overhand. You don't, it doesn't have to be hook, hook grip. Set up double overhand and depress your scapula and flex your lats and, and extend your mid thoracic as much as you can and feel the position you're in and then do it with a mixed grip. Because you're, because you're, you're, you're literally externally rotating one of the humeruses, you're not able to move the scapula in the same position. So I will say that, that Kaler's right. Like, it's not just about the grip strength. It's about the, the stacked positioning you're able to yeah. get. Like, it's very symmetric too, because again, your, your humeruses are in the same position. So I will say, Meg, that I am a hook grip master race puller. I recommend it to everybody. <laughs> However, I'm aware that you are a 132 pound female. And so if memory serves, you probably don't have hands the size of catcher's mitts. Um, yeah, and I understand- You don't have that, a ring hands. Yeah, so, and I understand that hook grip can be, for some people, hook grip is like a function of pain tolerance. Like, yeah, I can do it, but it fucking hurts. And like, I don't like it when it hurts. So, Fair enough. so full I, disclosure, I, whenever Kaler asked me, he's like, you know, hey, why don't you pull hook grip? Yeah. I straight up looked at him and I was like, I'm gonna be honest. Like, I'm a straight up bitch. Like, that's all, that was my answer. Yeah, so I, I come across that and then on Uh oh, it looks like we might have lost him. Oh no. On the other hand, I come. Okay, so we we lost you. So can you hear me? I, I didn't I could hear you the whole time. Uh I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. So what I was saying is for another group of people, like I coach a small woman named Hana, and she has these small hands, and we've looked at hook grip for her. But the fact that her fingers are just short, trying to wrap them around a 28 millimeter bar and then again over her thumb, it's just not really good. It's not really in the cards for her. And being that Meg is also similarly sized to Hana, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that hook grip is the answer for you because your hands might just be too small. Try it. Do everything you can. Because if you can make hook grip work, I believe that's the answer to the I think that's almost the end of this discussion. Pull hook grip. Yeah. I mean, hook grip if, will let you get, in, like you said, that more advantageous position and it requires less uh, rotation of the shoulder yeah. to a degree, but yeah, it, it's really going to depend on what so, your biomechanics are. Yeah. So if you can pull hook, pull hook, uh, if you can't, then I totally understand. And at that point we move to the next part of the conversation. Do I recommend you start alternating your deadlift grip? Uh, now, had you proposed this to me on day one of learning to deadlift, this would be a totally viable conversation. And we might be able to really have this discussion and like, in theory, I would even say like, yes, fucking do that shit. But since you've been doing this for literal years, like to the point where you're perceiving visual imbalances in your musculature, I would be hesitant to have you start doing that because it could put you in positions that you're not necessarily ready for. And it's not to say you couldn't build tolerance to like the reverse, I'm going to call it a reverse mixed grip. And when I say that, just think about reversing your hands. It's not to say you couldn't build tolerance to this reverse mixed grip, but it's almost like why. Um, yeah. So I think the answer at that point becomes, I would be, so then the next question would be, then what would my recommendation to you be? My next recommendation to you would be um, an increase in uh, unilateral isolation movements. So, um, and so and it, like, if we're thinking accessories, like less lat pulls and more single arm cable rows. 
uh, forcing the lats and especially the scapula, forcing those scapula to move independent of each other, forcing the lats to flex and contract independent of each other. By the way, guys, I think this is worthwhile for all my lifters, not just Meg with her perceived imbalances. I think this is, this is like, uh, what do they call it? Um, Oh, what's the term? I think that this is a um, underutilized thing in powerlifting, but yep. what I'm speaking on here. So I would, in, I would advocate for an increase in unilateral isolation exercises, uh, specifically your one arm rows. Um, and I would really like when I'm doing these rows, I would really be focusing on the movement mechanics of the scapula also. So not necessarily just depressing the scapula, bringing it back and then rowing but maybe letting the scapula actually travel up over the rib cage and kind of getting a stretch through, you know, kind of, kind well, of that's stretching. The thing. So people don't understand the, what the scapula does, right? So the scapula yeah, is responsible for the last 60 degrees of so rotation at the shoulder, right? So it's a two to one thing. There's 120 degrees at the glenohumeral joint, which is a shoulder joint, right? Mm -hmm. All right, cool. For that arm to continue going overhead, mm -hmm. you have to have rotation of the scapula. Or you have to have rotational, some kind of translation of the glenohumeral to get into this position, right? So if you were to try to keep your hand externally rotated and go up, you're going to have the 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 scapula is going to move up and underneath you to get to that position, right? Mm -hmm. There's no if ands or buts, like unless you're just somebody who's got really weird built shoulders and is just super hyper mobile, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like that 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 is something that's again, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. It's something very underutilized within powerlifting is actual like scapular mechanics and stabilization of the scapula. That is something that's very, very important. And public service announcement, uh, serratus interior attaches to the scapula. It is a very underutilized muscle. It is great for stabilization and is very, very important for it. Uh, yeah. PSA I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I agree with everything you just said. Um, so I would recommend for an increase in, in sensibly programmed unilateral isolation movements for your, um, again, your traps, your, your upper traps, mid traps, your, and even your lats. Um, these can all be trained unilaterally independent of the other arm. So even like shrugs, I love doing single arm shrugs. And that's not to say that I like hold a dumbbell in each hand and do shrugs with one in each hand, but I will hold one dumbbell in one hand and the other hand I'll hold like an like a, a squat rack and I will kind of lean out a bit so the dumbbell free floats and then I will use that trap independent of the other I will move the scapula independent of the other and I'm a huge fan of that kind of stuff yes well. I love that because like I said you're moving through the actual vector that the muscle is going to pull from right it's it, I'll say it again. You're, you're, what you're trying to really do is disavant, make the muscle you're trying to use disadvantaged to use that muscle, right? Or I guess another way of thinking about it is you're disadvantaging everything around that muscle to use that muscle. Isolate it, right? Uh, uh, I don't actually, this is a question. Do you agree with the, the methodology or the philosophy of like integration or isolation, integration, then performance? I think it depends on like the, how specific the task is we're talking about. Um, and oh, so I I'm talking we, about like muscle itself. So if you want somebody yeah. to use a muscle specifically within uh, like a performance aspect, so like, you know, mm -hmm. trying to use your glutes when you're squatting. Uh, so some of the things that I like to try and do 
and I've stolen this from other people is the isolation aspect to get them actually feeling working that muscle and then work on some kind of integration with that muscle. Yep. Uh, um, whether it be yes. single joint, multi, uh, two joint, and then moving from there and then getting into performance with that joint or with that muscle group. So I think that that's incredibly viable, especially the, the newer the athlete is we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so for example, a lot of like laymen on the street cannot flex their lats or even their pecs, like, because they just don't have it. Like, like the, for like the average dude on the street, they have no awareness of what their scapula are doing. They have no awareness of thoracic extension. Like even my old lady, like she, she kind of hangs out in a rounded posture a lot of the time, like in what, like we would call a kyphotic posture where her scapula are out and forward on the rib cage. And when she, she'll even say when she goes to yoga and they make her sit in like the lotus pose and she's actually in thoracic extension where like her chest is out, her scapula are down and she's in like what we would call a good neutral position. She says when she has to hold that for like 15 minutes, like it hurts because she's not used to that positioning. So I'm, I deeply agree with everything you're saying. I'm, I would back to Meg's business, back to Meg. I would recommend that she does. <laughs> Yeah, I would recommend that she does an increase in unilateral isolation movements, not just for the lats, but for the mid and upper traps as well. And on top of that, if my, if my recollection is correct and you're doing all of your back down work mixed grip, I would possibly advocate for the use of, I hate to say it, I would possibly advocate for the use of straps, not because your grip is weak, but because of the advantageous position it puts you in. Um, especially if you're moving towards a hook, a hook grip position. Now that's not to say that you stop taking your top triples, your top singles or whatever with your mixed grip. Like I don't want you to lose that movement mechanic. I want, so to answer the question from start to finish, I don't want you to switch your grip. I, I, if you're going to stick with mixed grip, I want you to stick with the same setup you've been using. There's also the fact that like, if you start reversing your grip, the distal bicep tendons will be in different states of condition after years. And like, God forbid this poor girl tears her bicep tendon because my dumb ass told her to reverse her grip. Don't reverse <laughs> your grip, don't do that. Try a hook grip. If you can do a hook grip, it's it's worth noting that, I, that you and I can sit here and think of probably a dozen lifters off the top of our head who have torn their distal bicep tendon, pulling mixed grip. How many distal bicep tendons can you think of from the hook grip? So, well, that's the thing. It's like none of them. Literally, um, but even zero. even that though, yeah. that's like distal bicep tendon tears. Like I tore mine squatting. Yeah, it wasn't even deadlifting. I was squatting. It's it's a more of a rare injury in the squat. Um, that, that one is yes, but the 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 thing that is causing that and what people don't understand is that the bicep tendon inserts into the shoulder. When you actually look at it, so for people that it attaches to the watching, scapula. It, exactly, the scapula, it, it, it goes like... up and over <laughs> yeah. the glenohumeral yes. joint and actually the way it integrates into it, it integrates into more of the uh the fascia that surrounds it and it pulls on that and that creates that upward trajectory of stability that the the glenohumeral joint has so when you actually look at the glenohumeral joint and the the shoulder itself you have so many different angles of forces that are working on it right and that's where the function the functional stability comes into this and you have to be able to create that so Part of the reason you're getting these issues with a, this is probably going into a different topic now, and but it's something I think a lot of people don't understand. It's like you're getting these issues with the bicep tendon, and especially down at the distal end, whether it be on the inside or outside, 
that can change the conversation quite a bit because then you're looking at different muscles, different tendons. But for the most part, when we're talking about distal tendon, bicep tendonitis, it's coming because you have a deficit in some kind of rotational ability, right? Whether it be internal or external, that muscle is either quote unquote tight and you need to work through some kind of mobility aspects with it, whether that's it's just probably be... internal. Well, so that's <laughs> like, that's... just if I had to take a shot in the dark, power lifters spend so much time in external shoulder rotation. Like, See, I would argue I, against I that. Set... Huh? I would argue against that actually though. I mean like in the back squat. So like when people present with like bicep tendonitis in the back squat, when they are externally rotating and then putting the bar on that insertion point near the scapula, it's like, and then I screen them for like rotational disparities. They often have a ton of external rotation because they're low bar back squatting. But then when I assess internal rotation, it's like, dog, of course your bicep hurts. Okay. Yeah. So that I agree with. Yes. But part of the question too, is like when you're like, not against you or anything, but like when people yeah. are screening for external rotation and stuff and whatnot, yeah. how much of the external rotation is actually coming from the joint at the shoulder yeah. versus the rib cage coming as well. And that's yeah. one thing people don't understand either. Yeah. But even then yeah. that's, that still isn't a one in one thing because you're adding yeah. external stability to that external stability yeah. because yeah. at that point, <laughs> like, it's a whole different topic we could go into. And I, I think so at they, some they point also, we they should. Also have, they have to understand that they also need to draw their rib cage over their pelvis and maintain yes. that central positioning, or they can rotate at the mid thoracic as well. Like, you know, you can create a lot of extension in yeah. the shoulder by actually rotating in the, so anyway, yeah, and that's, I'm with and that's, you on all of that. Yeah. That's a whole different thing. We can cover it. Um, I'm getting excited because I love talking about that, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So understand that you probably have some kind of deficit within either internal or external positioning of the shoulder. Um, and that's external positioning is just, if you hold your, your arm at a 90 degree angle, when your hands straight up, it's going to be, how far can you go backwards with your hand? And then internal is going to be how far you can go downward with your hand. Right. Um, so this is going to be something internal is good too. Like just looking huh? at it on the video, you're, yeah, you're, it's good. A lot of, a lot of powerlifters get real bound up. I'm telling you, like they get real yeah. bound up. Well, and that's the thing though. So you'll, you'll have to take an inventory of yourself, but odds are you probably do have some kind of either. Mm-hmm. Yes. One or the other or both. Um, a lot of people that I've worked with, I see, I felt the opposite like a lot of the people I've worked with have some kind of deficit with an external rotation. Um, not so much the internal. What I do find is that a lot of people who have pec issues have some kind of deficit with internal rotation. Uh, I can, and reason I can that for sure. Like, for yeah, sure. because as you come down, so, okay. <laughs> if you're, if you're not watching the video, you need to be, because I'm, I'm fixing to start talking with my hands as we talk about movement. But uh, if you're talking about a bench press, right. As you come down, Yes, we have external rotation of the shoulder and that's how we create the stability at for a bench press. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as you come down, you have extension and internal rotation of the shoulder to get down in this position, right? If you're already tight within that internal rotation, I can't get further down here without stressing that tendon either at the shoulder or at the uh, not bicep, um, pectoralis major or minor. Uh, so that's going to be a big issue. So the question comes like, how do you, how do you increase that? Right. 
dips are a great way. Body weight dips at a full range of motion that you can control and then trying to slowly increase that range of motion, not, not even increasing the, the weight or, you know, anything like that, but just increasing the range of motion on a week to week basis, as much as you can handle and control is a great way to, to help alleviate that issue. Uh, I've had a lot of people who have said, you know, I feel great when I do uh, dips within my programming and I don't have pec issues. And then I've also had people who say I have issues all the time whenever I'm doing dips. And it's like, what's the commonality between that? It's the internal internal rotation and extension of the shoulder. Um, so, wow, just had completely was watching my dog. But yeah, so internal external rotation. Um, now, when we talk about external rotation, there are so many different things we can do within programming to help alleviate this issue. And it can be as simple as just taking your tricep work and putting it overhead, right? So I do that with a lot of my clients and just, I can watch them week to week and say whether or not they've been doing their, their tricep work and doing it to the extent that I deem good, right? Because what I'm talking about is, look, a tricep overhead extension might be one of the most useless things in the world, right? Because at what point are we ever in this position doing this, right? And it isolates the long head of the tricep then. It does. It's like, it does. It's like one of the key ways to actually isolate it. Yes. But at the same time, though, we're not doing that when we bench press, when we squat. Right. No, I, I agree. I was purely speaking like mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing, though. Mm -hmm. It might be one of the useless exercises we see, but I use it all the time. The reason for that is because one, we're getting into being in an overhead position mm -hmm. and then we're getting into an externally rotated position to try and actually press this weight out. Right. So not only are we getting a range of motion that we're not in ever because we're always in an internally rotated pressing position and things like that. Anytime we do dumbbell work, anytime we do bench work, anything like that, um, we're getting into that position. We're getting exposure there. We also have to create stability. Uh, so that's, so I argue this all the time. You can't express power without stability, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have stability at a prerequisite level, you cannot express strength at a certain level. Um, basically what I'm saying with that is that if you try and jump on one leg and, you know, be laxatively about it, you know, you're not going to jump very high, but if you take the time to actually create stability within that leg that you're jumping, you're going to jump a lot higher. What's the difference? Well, you didn't get stronger between jumps if you did it at the same time, right? It's the, it's the stability aspect that you created that allowed you to transfer the power in the second jump versus the first jump. And go ahead. No, I was just thinking one of my favorite anecdotes for stabilization of output of power is that uh, every fat guy you want that you cross on the street can leg press a thousand pounds and they're exactly. proud of it. And they'll tell you that they can leg press a thousand pounds. Not one of them can back squat their body weight. I mean, the untrained nope. population, but the average untrained fat guy at any time can get on like a dynamometer leg press and do a rate, like a rate of force development that will exceed a thousand pounds because they don't have to stabilize that production of force. They're literally in a stabilized position, pushing against a stable object that only moves in one plane. But the moment you put even 135 barbell on this average untrained fat guy's back, 
he goes to fucking shaking like a newborn giraffe. And all of a sudden that thousand pounds of force that he was producing, it's not even 135 anymore yeah. because he has to now stay, he has to stabilize across numerous planes. He has to move in, in ways that he was not prepared for. And that's my exactly. favorite is, is that every fat guy can leg press a million pounds, but they can't score. And, and so that's the thing though. And then there's, there's merit to the term or the, the phrase uh, mass moves mass, right? There is merit to yes. that. Especially um, in <laughs> but well yeah honestly yeah. And, and it's it's because of that right so you have so much more mass which allows you to be stable passively right so take me for example i'm 210 215 on average right now you put me up to a 308 or i have to create way more internal stability than the 308 guy because i don't have that mass in my torso section now, the 308 guy is going to have, odds are, he's going to have a large amount of mass in his torso area, which I like to use the, term, the analogy of like, think of like a tree trunk, right? So a tree trunk, the, the, the wider it is, the more filled it is, the stronger it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So if your torso is shaped more like a tree trunk, or i.e. larger, you're going to have more stability. Now, other things play a role in that you know like torso length things like that but that's outside of those factors when we're just talking about like size in general it does matter psa announcement size does matter mm. um <laughs> but i yeah stability prerequisite stability is a thing and i will argue people against that all the time shoot me a dm we can talk about it but i think even even before stability you have to have an understanding of flexibility mobility stability and strength because i don't think they're anything in the same um and it's it's a concept that's that's near to me because like as i keep going and getting ready for uh going back to school and whatnot i keep diving into you know these other things and you know what i either what i've seen past past clinicians to do or what future clinicians are doing now or people i've learned from like seth albersworth uh, phenomenal physician, right? Phenomenal clinician. Um, Decent power lifter. <laughs> oh yeah, like a twenty twenty eight total. Yeah, two point two. That's decent. decent. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. Like I, I'm reaching out to people like that and asking them, like, hey, you know, where do you get your information from so I can start creating my own philosophies? So going back to the previous episode, talking about philosophies and how you create them. Like that's what I'm currently trying to do because when I go, I don't want to be behind the curve. Like there's so many people that are going to be going into, you know, courses and whatnot. They're not going to have this understanding. My goal when I get out is to be, you know, that go-to person, just like, you know, Seth or some of these other people. Uh, But there's a difference between getting back to the, the, the topic at hand is like, there's a difference between flexibility, mobility, strength, and stability. And I think they go kind of in that order of flexibility, mobility, stability, strength. You know, flexibility is not something you can change. And I argue that. Um, I recently changed my opinion on that, actually. Um, flexibility is that passive range of motion that a joint has, right? So flexibility, it may not be, you can't change flexibility. You can change the expression of flexibility, mm-hmm. which is just the passive range of motion, right? But you can't change the the, the range of motion that a joint has without changing some kind of structural or 
uh, tendinous ligament, whatever, like whatever it is, like you can't do that. And I, I, again, I welcome anybody that wants to have a discussion on this because all it's going to do is either reinforce the concepts I have or open my eyes to more concepts if you have them. But like I said, you can't change flexibility. You can change the expression of flexibility and that passive concept, but you can't actually change like my shoulder. I'm never going to be able to go, you know, 190 degrees of shoulder flexion, right? Because the flexibility is just not there. The joint doesn't allow it. You know, it's the same thing with the knee. Like I'm never going to have uh, rotational flexibility because I just, I don't have it. Like it's not there at the joint. Your, t- now, your tissue capacity will only be what it is. Exactly. Yes. Regardless that's a, that's of, regardless of what your saying. level, regardless of your level or ability to express it, capacity is only capacity, even on its best yep. day. Yep. I agree. Now mobility is different though, because our mobility is that a, is that functional ability to, or not functional, but that active ability to actually go through that range of motion. Like I am now. So I'm able to go through these ranges of motion and not, and go through a certain amount of it that we can change that we can change uh, either be under load through stretching things like that right so that's changeable um but again realize we're never going to change that any more than the flexibility we have previously we can't say hey we're going to mobilize this joint and your flexibility and your mobility is going to change um that's never going to happen if i only so if I only have 120 degrees of rotation at the shoulder, I can't mobilize the joint to 130 or 121. Like that's never going to happen. Just understand that. We have to work within the confines of what our joints are allowing us to do. Uh, degrees of freedom is basically uh, kind of like the concept that I'm talking about. Like how many degrees of freedom does a knee joint have? Well, it's very limited because it's only allowed, because it's a hinge joint, it's only allowed to, to go through a certain amount, right? Whereas the shoulder, it's a ball and socket. You can go through a lot more degrees of freedom than anything else. Uh, And it's the same concept, like the hip, you know, things like that. But uh, mobility, yes, you can change. You can actively change that. And it is something that does matter, but is also confined by the previous uh, being flexibility. Now, stability, stability is that, that ability to resists changes in motion through mobility, right? Uh, so a, a bottoms up kettlebell press. I love them. I'd make my clients do them. They probably hate me and that's fine because nobody complains about having shoulder issues. Why? Because you're able to stabilize the shoulder joint. So if I'm here and I have a kettlebell, for those that can't see, I have my shoulder up at a 90 degree perpendicular to my body and I'm pushing the shoulder outward using my serratus interior to help stabilize that. But this position with a kettlebell upside down, meaning I'm holding the handle and the weight is above my hand, that requires me to stabilize that kettlebell and hold it in a upright position. Mm-hmm. If I can't do that, then I don't have shoulder stability, right? Um, so that's, that's stability, right? That's the ability to resist that motion. And if I wasn't able to resist that motion, I wouldn't be able to press upwards and drive that kettlebell over my head. I wouldn't be able to express that, express that strength in that position. And so you have to have that prerequisite stability to express that strength, right? 
So it's the same thing with a bench press. If we can't stabilize the shoulder on a bench press or even a squat to get into that external rotation position or internal rotation position, we aren't going to be able to express the strength that's there. Um, which in the squat, we're talking about the, the, the strength aspect being creating stability on the bar to ourselves. Um, but this, it's the same concept like at the hip or the foot or anything like that. If we don't have that prerequisite stability, I can't generate as much. I can generate force, but I can't transfer as much force through the body that way. Um, and then strength is just, yeah, your, your ability to generate that force. Um, and again, like I said, I welcome anybody that wants to, to have a discussion on any of this, because this is stuff that I try to really push out to other coaches and to athletes to get a, an understanding of what this type of stuff is, because this stuff matters. It's nuanced, but it really does matter. I mean, how many times have I talked about it at the coaches meetings that we have every Sunday at five o'clock? Like I try to put it in as much as I can, because this is, this is what I deem as like a, a lateral way of thinking across coaching concepts. Like this is more than just thinking powerlifting or anything like that or strength training. You know, we have these different concepts and we can mobilize all we want. And this is really, in my opinion, this is really important when it comes to warmups. You know, we can mobilize and stretch all we want, but if we're not changing anything on like the actual mobility aspect and realize that we only need enough mobility to do certain things. We don't need ample amounts of mobility. Like that's, I don't need more mobility to go through a squat to parallel. Like that's the simple fact of it. I don't need more mobility of internal rotation to do a bench press. That's it. Like I need mobility to rack a bar on my back and create stability with my back. And that's it. And I don't think excessive ranges of mobility are protective either. I don't know. They're not it's true. And, and point being, so I was working with a female uh, not too long ago. And part of her problem was that she had ample amounts of mobility. She had extreme flexibility. She actually had probably some hypermobility. Yeah, yeah. And she was trying to squat in what was deemed the, the correct way to squat. And I'm using quotations because the correct way to squat, quote unquote, is stacked over your body, right? Well, guess what? If you can't create stability because you're stacked over your body, something's got to change or you're channeling you're channeling forces through things that shouldn't have forces strain, uh, channeled through like an SI joint or something like that. So you then have to change either, you know, the mechanics to create stability, which in this, in this case, that's what we did. We went to a wider stance and created more uh, external rotation at the hips for her. She felt great. That was it. That's all we had to do. Yeah. There's no change in anything else as far as mobility. Like I, this is a pet peeve of mine and I'm going on tangents and rants, but when people stretch and mobilize beyond what they need, I see it a lot with females, you know, they go through and they will, they'll mobilize through the hips, through the shoulders, all that crap. And I'm like, you don't need this. You can put your arm almost completely behind your head without even warming up or anything like that like everyday data data uh day-to-day -day life they can do it right. why do you need more mobilization than that All right cool it's protective yeah exactly it's like yeah, right that's the reason like instead let's let's go with something that's going to create stabilization for you like that's way more important especially within the sport a stable platform is a platform you can build on it's just like building a foundation for a house the age-old saying 
Like that's that's my stance on it. I don't even know how far off we're from our original topic, but <laughs> I mean that's all right. I feel like we very adequately answered A, B, C, and D of Meg's question, the both of us. And it is nine thirty, and I have yeah. to be up to squat heavy in the morning, so I got to hop off. But uh, sounds like a great place to stop then. Yeah, hopefully we can do another episode here pretty soon. Um, we had more questions to cover that we'll cover next time, and it yep. just occurred to me that we could probably do an entire episode on. Um, rotational disparities so i've re i recently screened uh two of my athletes and one of your athletes for rotational disparities at the hip and like the results were like god damn like you like all of us have just shit rotation and not just exactly. shit rotate not just consistent shit rotation but rotation disparity so like on one leg you they'll be able to externally rotate well and then it'll be shit on the other and on the other they'll have good internal and none on the other and like so I'm, I'm interested to kind of go over some of those like findings and like well, maybe what I think it could mean, what I think the impact could be and then ways to possibly address it moving forward. And that just occurred to me as we were getting ready to wrap up. I was like, man, I fucking did a lot of that this week and I'd be interested in going over that. Yeah, I think it would be a good, good episode, but so uh, let's wrap things up. Where can they find you? Um, you can find me by searching Instagram or Facebook for Steve Pruitt. Uh, my Instagram handle is at Steve's Lifts. And then uh, as always, follow at the Full Send Initiative on Instagram for spotting and loading tips. Uh, be sure to support and share the page as they grow and propel the initiative forward. And then what about you, Dalton? All right, so you can find me on Instagram, Dalton underscore MM, uh, ICSN. Just search that. Iron Circuit Strength and Nutrition will come up. Uh, website, I the letter I, letter C, strength.com. It's a cool We've website. Got... Too. Checking it out. <laughs> Thank you. I built that myself, actually. I was checking it out like um, two days ago. It's a good website. Yeah. Uh, so I've got that. I've got the coaches meeting every Friday or not Friday, uh, every Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, Eastern time. So that's on there as well. Uh, I think actually I think that's in my bio link in bio. <sighs> Still, Me too. But, in my uh, bio. But yeah. Uh, that's, I think, pretty much everywhere they can find me. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Bro. I, that's um, pretty much it then. All right. Great I will episode. Reach, I'll reach out to you tomorrow after my squats. And obviously, we'll discuss how that went. And then we will uh, tentatively schedule the next episode and like uh, topics of conversation. So I'll talk to you tomorrow, bud. Sounds good, man. Take it easy, guys. <laughs>